Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, coming to you now after watching Hamilton on Disney Plus two or three times over this past weekend. I really do love that show. And for those of you that come into the comments to my videos constantly asking me about my politics, that isn't a political statement. If I'm here to set the record straight, I'm not a Hamiltonian. Really, if you were to characterize my politics, it would probably be closer to uh, Madisonian. Uh, I hope that really clears things up for everybody, although I think all of the founders had their strengths and their weaknesses. But Hamilton has been a topic at the top of my social media charts all weekend long, primarily due to this Broadway show being made available on Disney+, Plus, but also... Thankfully, as of this morning, because Justice Elena Kagan decided to use Hamilton as a reference point for a pretty important Supreme Court case, although we don't usually talk about 9-0 decisions here in this space, it's still pretty important, and I know it's a topic that a lot of people have been discussing. So we're going to talk about the case of Shiafalo versus the state of Washington. Now, if you aren't familiar with this case at all, as I suspect the vast majority of you folks checking in on virtual legality aren't, this was about the Electoral College, probably a topic that you've heard discussed, especially since the election of 2016, or if you're a little older, after the election of 2000. Now, Justice Kagan frames this particular question as follows. She says, every four years, millions of Americans cast a ballot for a presidential candidate. Their votes, though, actually go towards selecting members of the Electoral College, whom each state appoints based on the popular returns. Those few electors then choose the president. Now, the states have devised mechanisms to ensure that the electors they appoint vote for the presidential candidate their citizens have preferred. With two partial exceptions, which she'll ignore, I think it's Maine and Nebraska, every state appoints a, a slate of electors selected by the political party whose candidate has won the state's popular vote. Most states also compel electors to pledge in advance to support the nominee of that party, right? So if you are electing the president in Michigan, you're actually voting for these electors who will then do a second vote at the electoral college. And the state says you pledge that you will follow the vote of the people. This court upheld such a pledge requirement decades ago, rejecting the argument that the constitution demands absolute freedom for the elector to vote his own choice. Today, we consider whether a state may also penalize an elector either monetarily or as a criminal law offense for breaking their pledge and voting for someone other than who the preferred choice of the whole electorate in the state would have them vote for. Now, I will tell you, spoiler alert, they, the Supreme Court holds 9-0 that the states do have the right to penalize electors for not following the wishes of the people, or more specifically, for not doing what the states told them to do. And I've got a number of pages here to talk about how they get to that decision, but also talking about the history of the Electoral College, because it's not as clear as the 9-0 decision would lead you to believe. It's actually a 7-2 decision, at least based on the legal arguments, with two folks, Thomas and Gorsuch, saying that the court arrived at the right outcome, but for the wrong reasons. That's what a concurrence means, rather than a dissent. It means they vote in the same direction, but for different legal reasons. Now, Justice Kagan continues by giving us a little bit of the lay of the land. She says the provision they approved about presidential electors is fairly slim. The founders, the people that drafted the Constitution. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors 
equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress, but no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. Nobody working for the government, at least the federal government, shall be appointed an elector, and each state can determine the manner as it itself determines to put those electors in the electoral college. That is the only provision that really talks about it in the Constitution. Now, the next clause of the Constitution, which would be superseded by the 12th Amendment, set out the procedure that the electors were to follow in casting their votes. As Justice Kagan describes it, in brief, each member of the college would cast votes for two candidates in the presidential field. The candidate with the greatest number of votes, assuming he had a majority, would become president. The runner-up would become vice president. If no one had a majority, the House of Representatives would take over and decide the winner. Now, without even knowing American history, you can probably already spot some of the problems here. And it's important to kind of talk about those. The founders of America or any country where you might be watching this video in aren't perfect. They weren't perfect when they drafted things. And even if they had good ideas, they were also subject to a kind of committee process. You had to get enough people on board. And whenever you go through a process like that, you wind up with little loopholes and problems. Now, the main problem here, as we will see addressed, is that when you have electoral college folks voting for two people at once and the one with the most gets presidency and the one that the second most gets vice presidency, you've got issues because it's very easy to have a tie, which is how Hamilton winds up getting referenced. That plan failed to anticipate the rise of political parties and soon proved unworkable. The nation's first contested presidential election occurred in 1796 after George Washington's retirement. John Adams came in first among the candidates and Thomas Jefferson second. Now, these are diametrically opposed political kind of folks, at least back in the 18th century. That meant the leaders of the era's two warring political parties, the Federalists, John Adams, and the Republicans, Thomas Jefferson, became president and vice president, respectively. Now, here's where Kagan starts talking a little bit of pop culture. She puts in parentheses, one might think of this as fodder for a new season of Veep. If you aren't familiar with that show, it's a one where uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus uh, is the vice president, and it's a comedy. It's a satire about the political process and the role of vice president, which in the American constitutional hierarchy really doesn't have any specific powers or authority with very rare exception. Now, I want to take a step back here because the reason I'm doing this video is because I really like Justice Kagan as a writer, and this is one of the reasons why. Obviously, as a person that runs a YouTube channel focused on talking about business and law through the lens of pop culture, I have a pretty solid belief that the best way to communicate important and significant ideas to folks is to bring them to where they live, that more people will have seen Veep, that more people will have seen and been familiar with the second act of Hamilton, as we will see in a moment, than just folks talking in kind of hypotheticals about the Federalist Papers or things of that ilk. And so if you write like this, if you write clearly, if you explain yourself well, if you bring other examples of things that people might recognize in their own lives, I think folks get a better understanding of the law. And while Justice Kagan and I don't agree probably on most things in terms of the decision-making that she has at the Supreme Court level, I am very respectful and very thankful in all honesty compared to some of the other justices on the court with her very clear thinking, her clear writing, 
and the pop culture examples and hypotheticals that she winds up putting in. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this video, because if you don't read Supreme Court cases very often, you might not be familiar with Justice Kagan's tendency towards doing this. This is not the only time that she has done this. Now, she continues. She says, four years later, a different problem arose. Jefferson and Aaron Burr ran that year as a Republican Party ticket. They ran together with the former meant to be president and the latter meant to be vice president. For that plan to succeed, Jefferson had to come in first and Burr just behind him. Instead, Jefferson came in first and Burr did too. Every elector who voted for Jefferson also voted for Burr producing a tie. Understand what the process had to be here. They had to go as electors and say, one of you has to vote for somebody else or withhold your vote for Burr in order to make sure that Jefferson gets one more vote than Burr. And apparently this plan had been achieved in various other places throughout the electoral process. It failed to be achieved here. And so they tied that threw the election into the House of Representatives, which took no fewer than 36 ballots to elect Jefferson. And here's the next parenthetical, right? And if you watch this this weekend, you know some of this, although I think this is probably the most confusing part of the play, if you aren't familiar with this kind of historical background, where Justice Kagan says, Alexander Hamilton secured his place on the Broadway stage, but possibly in the cemetery too, by lobbying Federalists in the House to tip the election to Jefferson, whom he loathed, but viewed as less of an existential threat to the Republic. By then, everyone had had enough of the Electoral College's original voting rules. Now, in the play, it's presented a little bit more obliquely, right? And I guess this is all spoilers for the Hamilton play with historical notes from the 18th century, but I digress. In the play, they suggest that Burr is running against Jefferson in some real respect, when that's not actually what's happening, and I totally empathize with Lin-Manuel Miranda trying to figure out exactly how to portray this. The picture that you have in front of you is actually Hamilton being asked by the chorus, the people, to decide between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr because the House of Representatives deadlocked. And in order to kind of understand how that happened, it's important to understand the political perspective at the time. It says, in February 1801, the members of the House of Representatives ballot as states to determine whether Jefferson or Burr would become president. There were 16 states, each with one vote, an absolute majority of nine was required for victory. It was the outgoing House of Representatives controlled by the Federalist Party that was charged with electing the new president. So you see another error, right, in the kind of concepting of this particular situation. If the party losing the presidency holds the House of Representatives when they would otherwise decide this tie, you've got an issue. And because of the way this was set up, Jefferson and Burr weren't identified as president and vice president as we might do today. So essentially, the House of Representatives has these two names that tied in electors, and they get to choose even though they know that the Republican Party wanted Jefferson to be president and Burr to be vice president. And Burr doesn't step back because what's happening is that most Federalists, that's Alexander Hamilton's party, that's John Adams' party, voted for Burr because they hated Thomas Jefferson that much. They thought Burr was the lesser of two evils. And so they were voting to put Burr in as the president and the rest of the delegations couldn't get up to that number of nine needed to actually elect Jefferson. So what happens at the end of the play of Hamilton and Justice Kagan is exactly right to kind of reference here as a concept to the problems with the Electoral College is that over the course of seven days from February 11th to February 17th, the House cast 35 ballots with Jefferson receiving the votes of eight state delegations each time 
falling just one short of the necessary majority of nine. Hamilton recommended to his party, the Federalists, that they support Jefferson because he was by far not so dangerous a man as Burr. In short, he would much more rather have someone with wrong principles. Excuse me. In short, he would much rather have someone with wrong principles than someone devoid of any. And so you get this situation where Hamilton on the opposite party is convincing his own party delegations in the various states to vote for the Republican who is his political opposition. And that's how you get the ending of the Hamilton play. Now, this isn't actually that specific to the entirety of the play. Please do watch it. I love it. Not even that's uh, said without being a Hamiltonian or anything like it. It's an excellent play. I highly recommend it. But Kagan is using it here to discuss things that she knows people will recognize. That this ending of this play is something that people know now after it became popular a few years back. And she's discussing it in the context of an important Supreme Court case. It says, most relevant here, states began about 60 years ago to back up their pledge laws with some kind of sanction. By now, 15 states have such a system. Almost all of them immediately remove a faithless elector, someone that doesn't follow their rules, from his position, substituting an alternate whose vote the state reports instead. A few states impose a monetary fine on any elector who flouts his, pe- his pledge. This case involves three Washington electors who violated their pledges in the 2016 presidential election. That year, Washington's voters chose Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump for president. The state thus appointed as its electors the nominees of the Washington State Democratic Party. Among those Democratic electors were petitioners Peter Chiafalo, Levi Guerrero, and Esther John, the electors. All three pledged to support Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College, but as that vote approached, they decided to cast their ballots for someone else. The three hoped they could encourage other electors, particularly those from states Donald Trump had carried, to follow their example with the idea being to deprive him a majority and kick this back over to a tie scenario. Now, that didn't work, but it was still an interesting question as to whether or not the state of Washington could actually impose these penalties on these people. That's what made it go to the Supreme Court today. Now, Justice Kagan takes a very textualist approach to this question. She says, Article 2's appointment power gives the states far-reaching authority over presidential electors absent some other constitutional constraint. Now, she notes in the footnote that checks on a state's power to appoint electors or to impose conditions on an appointment can theoretically come from anywhere in the Constitution. It's a contract kind of concept, right? You have this power, but if there's another provision that says you can't use it in X, Y, or Z way, that will control. A state, for example, cannot select its electors in a way that violates the Equal Protection Clause. You can't ask for only men or only women or only white people. You can't do things that violate another provision of the Constitution, especially one that was drafted afterwards, as is the case with the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And if a state adopts a condition on its appointments that effectively imposes new requirements on presidential candidates, the condition may conflict with the Presidential Qualifications Clause. Now, these are just examples, right? But you can imagine the state of Washington says you aren't allowed to vote for any president that is under the age of 50 when the U.S. Constitution only requires a president to be the age of 35. Justice Kagan is rightly pointing out that while there is broad authority given to the state, they can't start going around the Constitution's language with their qualifications. But just saying, hey, you agree to vote for who our people voted for doesn't rise to anything in that level. 
As she says, nothing in the Constitution expressly prohibits states from taking away presidential electors' voting discretion as Washington does. In fact, the Constitution is bare bones about electors. So what you've got here is a textualist argument, right? If you go back and you look at the constitutional provision, it just says the legislature can determine the manner of appointing electors. And in that power, they have the authority to penalize electors for not doing what they would otherwise have them do. Now, as it turns out, the electors in this particular case brought up a good point. They said, hey, you know, the founders didn't think that that was what they were doing with respect to the electors. They said the electors and their friends objected the framers using those words expected the electors votes to reflect their own judgment. Hamilton comes back. Hamilton praised the Constitution for entrusting the presidency to men most capable of analyzing the qualities needed for the office who would make their choices under circumstances favorable to deliberation. So too, John Jay predicted that the Electoral College would be composed of the most enlightened and respectable citizens whose choices would reflect discretion and discernment. So again, when we're talking about legal philosophies here, Justice Kagan is relying on the text. She says the text controls. The electors are relying on what we might call an originalist argument. Hey, okay, the text means something, but text can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. We need to go back and we need to look at what the founders thought. And we're going to quote Alexander Hamilton. Now, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 68 actually went a bit farther with respect to all of these arguments. He said, it was desirable that the sense of the people should operate in the choice of the person to whom so important a trust was to be confided, the president. This end will be answered by committing the right of making it, not to any pre-established body, but to men chosen by the people for the special purpose and at the particular conjecture. So Alexander Hamilton 100% believes while he is defending the U.S. Constitution as presented in 1788, that the Electoral College is a kind of concept of elites that are going to be brought together in a group and they are going to have the right of making the choice. It was equally desirable that the immediate election should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation and to a judicious combination of all the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their quote-unquote choice. A small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass will be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such complicated investigations. And as the electors chosen in each state are to assemble and vote in the state in which they are chosen, this detached and divided situation will expose them, much less to heats and ferments, which might be communicated from them to the people than if they were all to be convened at one time in one place. Now, heats and fervents don't much matter if you are bound to check the box. There is no question that Alexander Hamilton, and to some extent John Jay, and to some extent James Madison, the father of the Constitution and another writer of the Federalist Papers, undoubtedly believed in certain bits of this logic. But I still agree with Justice Kagan and her textualism. As she continues, even assuming other framers shared that outlook, it would not be enough. Whether by choice or accident, the framers did not reduce their thoughts about electors' discretion to the printed page. All that they put down about the electors was what we have said that the states would appoint them, and that they would meet and cast ballots to send to the capital. Those sparse instructions took no position on how independent from or how faithful to party and popular preferences the electors' votes should be. 
On that score, the Constitution left much to the future, and the future did not take long in coming. Almost immediately, presidential electors became trusty transmitters of other people's decisions. Now, I say I agree with this, and obviously it's a 9-0 decision of the court, so the Supreme Court agrees with this as well. But I do think we should take a step back because one of the things that we see very often happen, whether it's in contract negotiations or in discussions of imminent laws, Right, A lot of people have asked me to comment on the revisions and process of the Earn It Act, which I will probably cover later this week. But a lot of what you hear from people are examples and descriptions and illustrations of what they think the law does and promises from Congress people or from committee members that it doesn't do this. Or even if you could read it that way, we don't mean it to do that. And I think it's important to note that those promises should be discounted at a very high level. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is what wound up on the page. Yes, some justices are going to use an originalist argument in some cases. They're going to look at the legislative history. They're going to look at what people said contemporaneous to the bill's passage. But a number of them won't. A number of them will read it like programming language, like we talked about on prior SCOTUS brief videos. And in my opinion, that's the right way to do it because... While Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and James Madison might think one thing about what they passed, the other 25 people in the room at the time might think something different about what they passed. And you can't, as a justice or a judge or a person making a YouTube video, put yourselves exactly in the brain space of who passed it and why. So we are left with only the evidence of what actually made it through that sausage-making process. And I do think textualism is the right philosophy for something like this. And I think Justice Kagan is right to espouse it. As they said in the Constitution, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. And so within that power is assumed a power to penalize them as the states see fit. Now, before we started this video, I talked about a concurrence. I talked about Thomas and Gorsuch, and it's a concurrence I actually also agree with, right? I believe that Kagan is correct to look at the text here, to look at the Constitution and to say, you know what? There is no limitation on the state's authority to do these kinds of things. Where I think she is wrong and the court, the seven people voting for this actual legal analysis is wrong, is that they say that this language in front of you gives the state the authority to penalize their electors. And I hold with Thomas and Gorsuch that it's actually a little bit different. In their concurrence, they state the following. The court correctly determines that states have the power to require presidential electors to vote for the candidate chosen by the people of the state. I disagree, however, with its attempt to base that power on Article 2. In my view, the Constitution is silent on states' authorities to bind electors in voting, I would resolve this case by simply recognizing that all powers that the Constitution neither delegates to the federal government nor prohibits to the states are controlled by the people of each state. Or if you've been to law school, if you otherwise just follow constitutional law because you like it and it's fun, you might recognize this as a reference to Amendments 9 and 10, which if you have been to that law school, you will probably also recognize as the dead letter of the Constitution, depending on which professor you have. Now, Article 9 or Amendment 9 says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That's the so-called negative powers kind of vision of the Constitution, right? That the Constitution is all invested in the power of the people 
and the people then bestow that power to the states and then whatever trickles up from there to the federal government. And the Constitution labels only what the federal government can do. And if the federal government can't do it, then the states can do it. And if the states can't do it, then the people can do it. It's a document of negative rights. And it's one of those where you get a lot of fighting at the Supreme Court level. The justices of the Supreme Court don't generally like to interpret the Constitution this way. They like to establish what rights are, where penumbras and emanations come from. And Thomas and Gorsuch, rightly in my opinion, look at this and say, hey, the Constitution didn't say anything about it. So we arrive at Amendment 10. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Now, to some extent, that's a bad bit of legal drafting. Are reserved to the states or to the people? That doesn't actually help answer the question. But like Amendment 9, it is trying to establish that if we, the founders that drafted and voted up this Constitution, didn't give the federal government certain powers, then the federal government doesn't have those powers, and the states do. Or as Thomas and Gorsuch say in their concurrence, the Constitution does not address expressly or by necessary implication whether states have the power to require that presidential electors vote for the candidates chosen by the people. Article 2 in the 12th Amendment provide for the election of the president through a body of electors, but neither speaks directly to a state's power over elector voting. Now, they vote with the judgment of the court. They think it is right that Washington has the ability to penalize electors for not doing what they are told, but they think it for a completely different reason. That's not a controlling reason. The controlling reason is the seven votes that we talked about for the bulk of this video. But I do think it's interesting, and if you're at all interested in law and the way these things are thought about, the difference of opinion here is one that is likely to continue and, in fact, show larger fissures when you have questions that are more questionable and more justices willing to side with Thomas and Gorsuch for whatever different reason than just the Ninth and Tenth Amendments which is all a long way of saying I wanted to do a video on Hamilton today. I was thinking about doing a postmortem, and I am very thankful to Justice Kagan for putting some Hamilton quotes, for discussing the Electoral College in a way that was interesting, unique, and I think very helpful for people to learn about both the history of the Electoral College and what the court's decision actually says today. So I'm very thankful to her for that. And if you're at all interested in these kinds of things, we are talking about these kinds of topics here in virtual legality all the time. Mostly for the last week, we've been talking about things happening on Twitch and Reddit and various other big tech moves to get rid of folks like Dr. Disrespect or to change their terms of service to allow for certain hate, but not other kinds of hate. So if you're interested in those kinds of things, please do jump in. We also regularly talk about the Supreme Court. We talked about the DACA ruling. We talked about uh, Bostock. And of course, we talked about Wickard v. Filburn a couple months ago, just to kind of give a flavor for those Supreme Court cases that are absolutely ridiculous on their face. So if you like this, please like, please subscribe, please ring bells, please tell folks that we are here. We love to have conversations with new people in the comments to these videos. Otherwise, if you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.